0: Welcome, and thanks for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. For more information about us, visit HarvestLakeshore.org. Good morning, Harvest. If you haven't already, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today, we're going to be reading from Daniel 4, verses 18 through 27. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, May the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown which has come upon my Lord, the King, that you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules, the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O King, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed and that there may perhaps be lengthening of your prosperity. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated.
1: Thanks to Chris who read that from home, though I think he's actually present here this morning. Um, but to those of you who are at home, we are so grateful to God for you. You can still be involved in this service, even though you might be at home watching. So we're just, I want you to know that we're praying for you. Well, in 1903, financier Henry Pellet purchased 25 city lots in what is now the city of Toronto. And he purchased them in, uh, And and then in 1911, he started to build his own castle. Starting with the massive stables, he uh, built a hunting lodge, a.k.a. a coach house, a few hundred feet north of the main building. The hunting lodge alone is two stories, 4,380 square feet and that was housed often to house the servants' quarters. Uh, the house cost about 3.5 million dollars. That would be 45 million dollars in today's monies. And if it was listed on the MLS uh, today, it would probably go somewhere between 60 and 75 million dollars. It took 299 workers three years to build. At 98 rooms covering 64,700 square feet, it was the largest private residence in Canada. Notable amenities included an elevator. Remember, this is like 1911. Uh, An elevator, an oven large enough to cook an ox. Two vertical passages of pipe organs, a central vacuum, two secret passages like Clue, like the game Clue, like this is for real. Two secret passages in his ground floor office, a pool, three bowling alleys in the basement. This guy is literally on top of the world, both financially and practically. The name of this place is called Casa Loma. And it sits above the surrounding areas in the Toronto area. You can actually see it from the CN Tower. If you know what that is in Toronto, you can see this castle. But then during the depression that followed World War I, the city of Toronto increased Casa Loma's property taxes from $600 per year to $12,000 per year. Now that's a lot to us, but in today's monies, that would have been like increasing your taxes from $8,000 a year, which would be a lot, to $156,000 a year overnight. And he had some other financial difficulties. So even after auctioning off millions of dollars of art and furniture as a result of the financial difficulties from the city and other things, Pellet lost everything. The city seized Casaloma in nineteen twenty-four for unpaid taxes. He only lived in it for about ten years, and then it sat vacant for years. Now you've probably heard the phrase pride goes before the fall. And it can certainly probably be applied to this story. This is what happens. And as what happened to King Nebuchadnezzar in this particular story that we are reading. We often, when we we read a story like that, particularly with Nebuchadnezzar, we're thinking, this is not a great guy. So when we read a story about his downfall, sometimes we can kind of jump on the bandwagon of like, yes, finally he gets his. Finally, he gets it. But what we can miss is the broader picture of what's actually going on in the story. We can miss the patient pursuit of God in the process of actually restoring a king. So this is what happens to King Nebuchadnezzar in our story. It's it's a story not just about an arrogant king, but about an arrogant king who is brought low by God so that he's humbled only to be restored mercifully. So this morning, we are going to examine how God took a proud man to a place of ruin only to bring him to a place of restoration. And God does that with us. So our first point this morning is God is patient in waiting for repentance. So as we come to this chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar, kind of like the guy that built the castle, he's on top of the world. This is the, the place that he has, has made. When the first century historian Josephus wrote this. He said, When Nebuchadnezzar had thus admirably fortified the city and had magnificently adorned the gates, he added also a new palace to those in which his forefathers had dwelt, adjoining them, but exceeding them in height and splendor. In this palace, he erected very high walks, supported by stone pillars, and by planting what he called uh, a pensile paradise and replenishing it with all sorts. Of trees. He rendered the prospect an exact resemblance of a mountain country. And then Herodias goes on to talk about the same thing. Uh, he says, and it lies in a great plain. It is a shape or of square, each side 120 furlongs in length. Thus, 480 furlongs make the complete circuit of the city. Such is the size of the city of Babylon. It was planned like no other city. Round it uh, runs first a fosse a, a kind of a moat that's deep and wide, full of water around the city. And then the wall was 50 royal cubits in thickness and 200 cubits in height. So it's 75 feet wide, this wall, 300 feet high. These walls are the city's outer armor. Within them there are, is another encircling wall, well nigh as strong as the other, but narrower in the midmost of One division of the city stands the royal palace surrounded by a high and strong wall. So these are first century historians giving us this description of this castle-like place in the midst of this city that's fortified with these walls. And this is the nation that has conquered the nation of Israel. And so King Nebuchadnezzar has all this power. And at the beginning of the chapter, take a look, it appears that King Nebuchadnezzar is praising God. Look at verses uh, 1 to 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples and nations and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs? How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And the setting of the story. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house, prospering in my palace. Kind of looks like he's giving praise to God. But we know from a little bit later in uh, the book that he's not practicing righteousness. What was What was stated and read by Chris in verse 27, uh, because Daniel's like, King, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. So something's going on here, even though King Nebuchadnezzar is saying something outwardly about God, inwardly, he is not honoring God. He is enjoying being at peace and prosperity on his high hill, ruling over everything. Everything. And it can be easy when things are going well to praise the Lord. It was for him. Praise can be easy during prosperity. But he let this, these victories cloud his judgment. Under the surface, King Nebuchadnezzar's heart was far from God. And prosperity can cloud our judgment in our situations. If I'm prosperous, therefore I must be fine. I've done all these great things, so therefore everything's good. God is good. Look what he's done for me. Oftentimes when we share our stories, we're sharing about what God has done. We we share about in the context of what he's done for us, but it seems that the context here is Nebuchadnezzar is focusing on him. I'm so great. Look what God did for me. we learn that his life was not honoring God. But God warns him. And God supernaturally warns him because right after he's sitting at ease in his palace, look at verse five, says, I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. And he he recounts, The dream, he actually calls upon Daniel and he recounts the dream that Daniel, we just read about that Daniel recounted the dream and interpreted the dream. So this dream that comes, God is supernaturally trying to open his eyes. Remember, this is not the first time that God has done this to Nebuchadnezzar. A few chapters ago, we learned about him having another dream. In which he learned about the history of what was going to happen in his reign and beyond his reign. And that didn't seem to arrest his soul. But God does arrest the souls of men and women. He does do that in a supernatural way. Actually, he's the one that has to do it. When you think about Paul, Paul was present when Stephen was stoned to death. The gospel was being preached and he heard it and he ignored it. And yet God had to blind him to get his attention because true conversion can't happen by human instruments alone. God has to do the work. Conversion must be accomplished by the power of God. That's certainly why we pray, because God has to do the work. We certainly need to be faithful in sharing the message, but God has to do the work. We have to expect him to do something supernatural. But God also warns by human messengers. God used Daniel as the instrument to warn Nebuchadnezzar. Look again at verse 19. Then Daniel whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. Think about the significance of that statement. So, Daniel just hears a dream. He hasn't interpreted yet. We know, as we've already read, that Daniel interprets the dream and it's not going to go well for Nebuchadnezzar. This is a guy who had defeated his people, had taken him from his homeland. He's rash in his judgments. He almost put him to death because he didn't get what he wanted when he wanted it. He almost put his friends to death. In fact, he thought he was putting them to death by throwing them in the fiery furnace. This was the kind of ruler that he is. And Daniel gets this vision that Nebuchadnezzar is going to get his. But he doesn't go, finally, it's about time. Let me kind of subtly kind of say what this is and he's going to believe what I say because he's asking me, No, he's broken because he has God's heart for Nebuchadnezzar. Have you ever been tempted to desire judgment on the lost? Maybe someone in your life who's had a position of, authority or someone who was an unbeliever, uh, you know, a government official or whatever that case may be. And then you're just like, oh, I just want them to get theirs. That's not Daniel's response. How often are we given the opportunity to be the one who can lovingly share the message of the gospel to those who desperately need it, even if they're in this position of authority? God God may want to use you to be the one to share the message, the good news that they need to hear. The good news is going to be sharing a hard message, certainly sharing the bad news before you can share the good news, but God may want to use you. And don't think that your life is different than Daniel's. Like, oh, well, Daniel, he's just got this, you know, he's got these crazy things happening to him all the time. Let's let's think about Daniel's life for a minute. Daniel... Daniel's life was actually pretty normal. I mean, we can get this feeling that it wasn't normal because of even where we've been so far in the book, but over the course of these 12 chapters, we just get described for us nine events in Daniel's life. I mean, all of the last chapter was about his friends. I don't know where Daniel was at that particular point in time, but he arrives in his late teens, early twenties, and He has the issue with the food and then he interprets the dream and then his friends happen and that probably happens in the first couple of years he's there. Then this doesn't happen until like maybe 20 or 30 years later. Most of Daniel's life was probably boring and mundane. The bulk of our lives is lived out in ordinary ways, but there are times when God wants to use a ready servant like you to do something significant and profound and it's as simple as sharing the message of the gospel because God warns using human messengers. So Daniel interprets the dream and it's not an exciting interpretation. Again, look at verse 24 and 25 again. O king, it's a decree of the most high which has come down upon my Lord, the king that you shall be driven from among men. Okay, this is a guy who owns the castle on, on top of the hill and no one challenges his authority, but he's going to be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you till you know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Remember again, this is not a guy who takes bad news well. But yet Daniel faithfully shares the bad news. And we can feel that reality when we are confronted with sharing the gospel with others. Because we have to share bad news with them. The gospel is good news only because there's bad news of the fact that we are separated from God because of our sin. I don't like telling people that they're lost in their sin. I don't like them yelling back at me or confronting me back. How can you tell me what you think? You're just judging me. How can you tell me that I'm a sinner? The Reality is, is we are separated from God. And we have to share that story. We have to share the story of creation, how Adam and Eve rejected God's ways and it put this whole world into a tizzy, uh, spinning out of control. But God, that's where the good news comes in there's a way of escape. And when we make our appeal, we make our appeal like Daniel made his appeal. Because at the end of this little section in verse 27, Daniel says, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be perhaps a lengthening of your prosperity. He makes a loving plea. He begs him, Nebuchadnezzar, please turn from your ways. You know that you're you're oppressing people. Please stop doing that. We are making a call for folks to turn from the way that they're living their lives to another way. And he makes that appeal. But sadly, warning, did, warning? Nebuchadnezzar did not make a difference. And we can feel the same way. Maybe you have shared the gospel with someone that you love. Maybe you've shared the gospel with someone who's in a position of authority and they don't do anything with it. Maybe you're intimidated or hindered from sharing the gospel because you're like, I don't think they're going to believe. I had a friend like that in high school that we knew. We knew each other when we weren't Christians. When I became a Christian in college, I came home and I'm like, my friend Kip, I I just... I just don't even know if I'm gonna share this message with him because he's just gonna reject it. Because he rejected others. He visited church with me, he rejected that. He was going to reject it. And you can feel that way. But sometimes God calls us to preach a message, the message of the gospel, when there's not immediate fruit. And we have to trust Him with it. Because in my friend's situation, We had to trust God with it because he didn't get saved for years later. In fact, we had lost touch. I had actually stopped praying for him. That's how much faith I had for him to get saved until I got a letter years later. Hey, would you and your brother be in my wedding? Oh, and then we call on the phone and we learn that he had been radically saved. God wanted to do a work and we didn't have to see the immediate fruit. But one big point we have to see in the midst of this is God was patient with Nebuchadnezzar. God is patient in waiting for repentance because after the dream is interpreted, this is what happens. Verse 28, and 29, all this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the Royal Palace 12 months, that's a year. This dream comes, a clear interpretation, an appeal for repentance, and nothing. At any point in time, in that 365 days, Nebuchadnezzar could have repented In Nehemiah 9.17, it says they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. God is patient as he walks. Not just, don't just look at the people out, even with us. God is patient with us. When we make a mistake, there's not an immediate, okay, you're done. I'm stopping you right there. No, God is patient. But when we reject his goodness, he doesn't want us to continue in that manner. And so sometimes he brings ruin to produce humility. Sometimes he brings ruin. That's the second point. Sometimes he brings ruin to produce humility in us or in others that we know. As as we look here in the text, God brings Nebuchadnezzar to ruin. Look at verse 30. So when the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. Gone from top of the world to looking more like an animal than a human being. Like that. Though God is amazingly patient, God will humble us if we are proud. Nebuchadnezzar thought of himself as being at the center of the universe, the tree by which everything received its sustenance. But this is what pride does. Pride locates oneself at the center of the universe. Pride puts everyone else in second place. Pride constantly compares ourselves with others. Its eyes are directed sideways and downwards, not upwards. Pride wants to be the better mother. Pride wants to be the more skillful gardener in the neighborhood. Pride wants to be the better employee. Pride wants to push others down so that others can see me as they push it up. Pride is not just the arrogant politician. Pride is when our gaze is fixed on ourselves and our performance in ways that distract us from looking up to God. If we don't humble ourselves, God will humble us. And there is a reality. Sometimes the crises in our life are because there are areas in our lives in which we have elevated them above God. They've become idols for us. But when the consequences of our sin come crashing down around us, that's not a bad thing. Because it's it's paving the way for the opportunity to be restored. It's tearing down the idols in your life so that you won't focus on you, but you will focus on him. And I understand it can be hard. And to my knowledge, when you think about the story of Casaloma, I've been able to find a record. Maybe it happened, but I don't find a record of someone sharing the gospel with Henry Pallet. His crisis ended everything, and that's like the end of the story. No no eternal effect on his soul. Friends, if you found yourself in a crisis of your own making and you've rejected God, let that crisis of life drive you to your knees and reveal to you your need for God and your need to acknowledge God. And I would encourage you, implore you to repent of your sins. Or if you're watching at home and you've never responded to the gospel, there's an opportunity for you to respond. You don't have to walk through this kind of massive trial to experience his grace. God can change your passions like he changed Nebuchadnezzar's. But God has designed trials in our lives, even if they're not ones of our own making for us to grow. They can often be precursors to our spiritual growth. Ruin is often used by God to produce humility. It strips us of our self-sufficient attitudes. God doesn't want us to trust in what we achieve. He wants us to trust in him. There's no correlation between Nebuchadnezzar's success and his goodness. The correlation here is God's goodness is the root of our blessing. God wants to use the crisis to show you your need for him and to show you his goodness because there's a promise even in here, even in this bad news that Nebuchadnezzar gets, there's a promise. Look at verse 23. In the middle of verse 23, as Daniel's talking about, it's going to chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth. Even though Nebuchadnezzar would experience ruin. Even in the prophecy of him experiencing ruin, there's a note of hope. God's not leaving. God's not leaving. God's not responding like I'm just going to be punitive just because I'm sick and tired of you. Like Maybe you could be tempted if you have small children and they do things, they're not doing what you want to do or maybe you have the opportunity to be in charge at your workplace and employees aren't doing what you want them to do and we can respond impatiently sometimes. God doesn't do that. He's absolutely patient but there's always the purpose of hope for restoration. God's Judgment on the king was not the final word because God restores out of his goodness and mercy. God's plan was to restore. His plan, as it says again in verse 26, and it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree. Your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. As Christians, we don't want to celebrate the destruction of others. We want to believe God's going to do something there in their life. Trial comes our way and we should grieve when trial comes the way of others because apart from God's grace, our story would be their story. When I see someone plowing on ahead and being merciless or someone who's made a wreck of their lives and others' lives, all I have to do is look back at the times in which God has brought conviction to my life. And if God had not brought conviction to my life, I would be on the same track. I'd be divorced Or I wouldn't even be walking in any kind of way, assembling the way that it looks now. I wouldn't have the friends that I have now. In fact, I would have ostracized people. I would have used people for my own liking and for my own will and for what I wanted to achieve in my life. That would have been my story. I would have been that individual apart from God's grace. So we want to pray that God brings them low so that he can restore them. And even when God has brought you low, don't look at it as like, now I need to pay penance because restoration is not achieved through penance. It's achieved through repentance. Repentance. Penance is when we kind of do things to try to outwardly say, I'm going to do this thing. If I do this hard thing, then, you know, I'm paying for the things that I've done. And then then maybe God will love me. I've got to do these hard things. No, God doesn't put those things in your life just so that you can do some hard things so you can earn back favor. No, he sent his son to the cross to show you the favor that you have so that if you trust in Jesus, you experience his favor and not his punishment. Look at verse 34 and 35. At the end of the days. <clears throat> so this is Nebuchadnezzar. Were left. His, his hair's as long as eagle's feathers. His nails were like bird's claws. And at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. Now, doesn't that sound familiar? If you hold your finger there in the Bible and you flip back to the beginning of the the chapter, didn't didn't he say the same things? Didn't he say, for his kingdom is an everlasting? Right there in verse three, his kingdom is an everlasting dominion, and his dominion endures from generation to, to generation. So what's different? Look at verse 35 all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar's praise is absent of me and humbly acknowledges with his words doing this. Who can tell you what to do, God? I'm humbled before you. He's repentant. He's repentant and he sees himself in light of who God is. Not to be crushed, because he's not crushed. Rather, God restores him. Nebuchadnezzar's return came when he took his eyes off himself and looked up to heaven, when he acknowledged his need for God and humbled himself. True humility is not when we put ourselves down or say how worthless we are. True humility takes our gaze off of us and places it on our heavenly father. When we recognize we are nothing and our father is everything. And there's a reality. Sometimes the process of repentance, it's hard, but it's good. And C.S. Lewis describes how it can even feel. He describes in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, maybe you've read the Chronicles of Narnia books, but in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, he presents us with a picture of one whose reason returns. Eustace the boy whom everybody loved. I don't know if you've read the book. No, not everybody loved him. It's kind of the one that you want to get his, right? Everybody, when you first learn about Eustace, if you haven't read the book, you should. Uh, you're like, hmm. Turns into a dragon, right? The boy was ruled by pride until it turned him quite literally into a deranged dragon. Aslan. Love saying Aslan. Aslan, the lion figure who represents Christ in the book, tells Eustace, you will have to let me undress you. About which Eustace later says this, and that's kind of how it feels, the process of repentance. He says, I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I can tell you I was pretty nearly desperate. So I just lay flat on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right to my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I had ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. Do you know that pleasure? Do you Know a time when God brought you to a place in your life where you are flat on your back. Whether it be like the historical figure of Nebuchadnezzar or a fictional figure like Eustace as our examples, why not respond like them and pray, dear God, my pride has nearly ruined me. Your power has nearly overwhelmed me and I have been brought low. Please change me. Put your new clothes upon me. Give me the robes of Christ's righteousness that I may rise from this desperate and deranged state and give you the praise that's due your name. Even in that picture of Eustace, it's God who is doing the work. It's not you. I've got to just tear this off. I've got to change myself. No, God is going to do the work in you. And he does that work because at the end of the chapter in verse 37 Nebuchadnezzar says pray I I Nebuchadnezzar praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble Nebuchadnezzar understood Restoration is not achieved through penance, but through repentance. And restoration is only achieved through God's mercy. It's not our effort. The only way to enter God's kingdom is with empty hands and a broken heart, praising God. Because God's love isn't dependent on our goodness. It's dependent on his unmerited mercy. 1 Peter 1 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Friends, in all this, we must remember that there was another king who was brought low. There was another king who was brought down from the highest of heights, He was a king who not only sat high above creation, but he was the king who was the author of creation. Yet instead of exalting himself, he humbled himself. He was the very nature of God and became man who lived among us. Nebuchadnezzar went from an earthly kingdom to a place where the beasts of the field lived. Yet our king took a more monumental step, and he came and was a servant to heal the sick, to preach to the poor, to wash the disciples' feet. And then he served by being falsely accused and paying a criminal's debt on a cross. This humbling was not forced upon him by pride. This was a voluntary choice because of our pride. We must remember his time of humiliation is over and he is now exalted at God's right hand. The vision of the crucified in the exalted Christ, that's the cure for our pride because it's hard to be proud when our gaze is fixed on Jesus. Jesus. Jesus is the real tree at the center of the universe that gives life. When we view that we have received mercy, our boast changes. Our boast changes to be in the cross of Christ alone. All we contributed to our salvation was our depravity. Yet be reminded today as we look to what Jesus has done, we are more loved than we ever dared hope. Let's pray. Father. This can be a familiar story to us. And even this morning, as I prayed, I know I can be tempted to look at those in high positions that are ruling in ways that appear ungodly and hurtful. Those that I've encountered and I confess there are times when I want to see their downfall. God, would you give me a fresh vision for you to work, for you to work in their life. Lord, let me not forget that I would be in that place if Jesus didn't stand in my place. Lord, I pray this morning as we leave here that we would be reminded of what Christ has done not about what we need to do. Even if we are convicted of pride, let us run quickly to the throne of grace. Let us run quickly to the foot of the cross because, Lord, we want to experience the forgiveness that comes when we confess our sins. Lord, do that work in us where you tear off the mess that we have made in our lives only to reveal the work that you have done. The work that you began, you're going to complete. And I pray, God, that we would be most aware of that. So, Lord, lead us to your feet, not to our action. We pray, God, that you'd be glorified and and change us. We ask this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't we stand and respond in song?
0: Thank you for listening to the Harvest Lakeshore Sermon Podcast. Harvest Lakeshore exists to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. For more information about us, visit harvestlakeshore.org.